Well, imagine for a moment, maybe you don't have to imagine, maybe some have experienced this, but imagine uh, flying to a city for a business meeting of some sort, and the host company was going to send someone to meet you at the airport to take you to your hotel or wherever your destination was. You would probably appreciate a somewhat detailed description of the person that you were meeting so that you would know uh, who to be looking for and that it was somebody you could trust before you got in the car with them. You, you, you probably wouldn't want to just walk out and see somebody, you know, holding up a, a, a sign on poster board that says Susan, and he's wearing a black trench coat and standing in front of a white van with no license plate or something. Uh, you know, that wouldn't maybe seem like the kind of guy you would trust enough to get in the van with him. Right? You would want to know who it is I'm looking for so I'd know I could trust him. Well, Micah provided a description of that sort of the Messiah hundreds of years in advance in a rather detailed fashion, as it turned out. The details became clearer um, after the birth of Jesus and looking back and seeing how those were fulfilled and manifest in him. But he provided a rather detailed description of the Messiah so that the people of God then and in the centuries to follow would know who it was they were looking out for. So they'd recognize him when they saw him and they would know he's the one they can trust. He's the one who will deliver them safely and securely uh, to a place of promise. Well, Micah prophesied around the same time as Isaiah. I mean, he's considered one of the minor prophets because his, his book is shorter, not because it's less important or less significant in some way. But he prophesied really right around the same time as Isaiah, before and after the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by um, the Assyrians. And also like Isaiah, he prophesied a message of judgment if the people did not repent. It, it was long coming, but they had a, lo uh, a long advance warning and an invitation to repent. And if they repented, uh, good would continue to come to them. And if they did not, judgment would befall them. Of course, that is the way that it played out. But even then, in the midst of that, there was a message of hope beyond the judgment. And part of the hope rested in the fact that God would send a savior and deliverer. The Messiah, as he was called in the Hebrew language and in Greek, the Christ. But it means the anointed one that God would send as a deliverer for his people. Micah provided a profile for him, as I said, so they would know who to be looking out for. And so there would be no need in this case, for them to form a Messiah search committee, you know, because he would come forth in his appointed time, but if they had formed a Messiah search committee or if they just had a profile of the Messiah that they were looking for, uh, Micah gave them uh, some of the particulars of, of the specific profile. They would recognize him when he showed up. So when we come around to the Gospel of Luke in particular, and also the Gospel of Matthew and other places in the New Testament, we find that Jesus very clearly fits the profile that Micah provided. 
And in fact, Luke, as a, uh, a careful historian, has intentionally connected the dots in those ways for us. Well, we want to look at that profile in some way to see um, as we look back, as we have the, the, the advantage of looking back in history um, and, and seeing that Jesus is the Messiah and that he came and seeing how he fulfilled those promises. I want to look at the profile that, that Micah provides for us of the Messiah because he tells us something about his role, his background, and then his contribution. And you, you think about, again, in a uh, executive search process, if it was a pastor search or a CEO search or a Messiah search, there would probably be uh, some description of the role that they're asking somebody to fill, what it is that they, they want that person to do, the sort of background they're looking for, education and experience and so on, and then the contribution they want that person to make. Micah actually tells us those things about the Messiah. And he says, first of all, something about his role Namely, that he is to be the ruler in Israel. You see that in verse 2. And that he shall shepherd his flock in the strength and the majesty of the Lord. Now, I'm going to be really brief on this first point here because these are really just uh, in it, th these are reiterations of what we would, um, the, the glimpses we would get of the role the Messiah was to play among the people of Israel from anywhere the Messiah is mentioned. As long as he's been promised, there's a sense in which God would raise up a ruler for the people of Israel, a savior, a deliverer. He'll be raised up by God to save his people. And so that just simply places him in the Messiah category, that he's a ruler in Israel and shall shepherd in the strength and in the majesty of the Lord. That's his role, plainly stated, as Micah Highlights it, but his background really gets more specific and more interesting uh, because it says, first of all, about his background that he's going to be from Bethlehem. When we sing about O Little Town of Bethlehem, we're singing something that is historically accurate. That is not just poetic, as somebody wrote a sweet little song. It was a little town, and you may have noticed in verse 2, that it says that. And maybe you didn't know that before this morning. Aren't you glad you can leave here having learned at least some little bit of trivia about Bethlehem? It was little, it says, too little to be among the clans of Judah or among the thousands, literally, if you're reading the King James. When Joshua, in, in Joshua chapter 15, when they began to occupy the land of promise, he made an allotment of cities for each of the tribes. And in Joshua chapter 15, he, he's, uh, he makes that allotment for Judah specifically. And he named 115 cities in Judah. Bethlehem didn't make the list. Or by its more ancient name, Ephrata, it didn't make the list either. Bethlehem would have been like you know, an unincorporated town in our day, a crossroads or something, you know, little towns that people uh, are, are from and the, the ones who are from there would say they're from there. The ones who aren't from there don't even know there exists. You know the places I'm talking about, like there's not even a stoplight in town, just a crossroads. You better look both ways before you go through the crossroads because there's nothing that's going to stop anybody or whatever. Just a, 
a, a, a small town so that really it's the kind of place where if somebody's from there, they don't say they're from there because then somebody's going to ask, where is that? I, I had a good friend years ago um, who was, uh, he would always say he was, he was originally from the Hickory area. And you might not even know where the Hickory area is, but anyway, in the western part of the state. But he, was, he would always say he was from the Hickory area because he was really from a place called Dudley Shoals. You never heard of Dudley Shoals, probably, did you? Unless you're from the Hickory area. <laughs> but if you introduced yourself as being from Dudley Shoals, then the next thing you'd have to say, uh, oh, that's up in the Hickory area. They would just say, I'm in the Hickory area. I'm from the Hickory area. Well, Bethlehem was that kind of town. It was, it was so small, it didn't even make the list of towns. And so the people who lived right around there would know where Bethlehem is from. But if you traveled, you know, somewhere far away, you would say, I live just south of Jerusalem. It's a little town of Bethlehem. And it is, as Jerry's testimony about the Thanksgiving project even reminded us, it is God's pattern to use small and weak things of the world to accomplish his purposes, great purposes, so that nobody else can boast, so that he is glorified, so that it removes the question about who's responsible for what he has done. And he, he did that in part by uh, just announcing in advance and then bringing to pass the fact that the Savior, not only of Jerusalem and not only of Judea and Israel, but the Savior of the whole world, would be from a little town called Bethlehem. But even though it was that, a little town, Bethlehem had registered significantly in, uh, in, the, in the history, at least, of the people of Israel. Because that's where the story of Ruth and Boaz took place, that love story that we know about in the book of Ruth. And uh, he, he, the kinsman redeemer, um, took her, and they, they um, you know, married and had children or a child and then a grandchild and then a great-grandchild. They gave birth to Obed, whose child was Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. All of that family was from Bethlehem. And so it, Bethlehem registered on the map, at least in that way. Again, not unlike plenty of small towns where there's some famous person that came from there. So, so they have a noble history there. But it's not the place, it's not the kind of place where being from there, you would establish connections that would open doors to you later down the road, right? You know, you, you, maybe you were a person like that. Maybe you know people like that. They lived in the kind of city, grew up in the kind of school where just being where they were put them in the position to, to meet people, to be introduced to people that would open doors for them later, that's just part of the way the world ticks. But God said, the Messiah is not going to be from that kind of place. There are no, no great connections coming out of the little town of Bethlehem that would uh, put him in the right schools, in the power centers, and that sort of thing. But he would come uh, from that legendary family line of David whose city was Bethlehem. So it says he was from, uh, that, that's part of his background that's specified uh, in the Messiah search profile 
that he should be from Bethlehem. The second thing it says is that he has an ancient origin. Uh, Verse 2 says his coming forth is from old and from ancient days. Now that that language is, uh, is not entirely clear, especially translated in English, but one of the ways of understanding that reference is that it's saying the Messiah will come forth from God, and even that the Messiah uh, uh, possesses divinity or deity himself. The, the, the word here uh, that's translated from of old is in some places translated or, or, or ref, uh, made reference to God's eternal nature. There are places in the scripture where that Uh, same Hebrew phrase is used to refer to God's eternal nature. And so some scholars see that as a reference to uh, when it says that the Messiah will be from of old, that he possesses an eternal divine nature uh, of God himself. Another way of understanding is simply that it points to that ancient lineage of, uh, of David and Jesse and, and so on, that, that, that kingship of David in particular, to whom the promises was made that there would always be somebody to sit on his throne. But either way, it says that the promises, the background of the Messiah is that he will have an ancient um, origin, that he, that he will come as part of a plan that has been unfolding, not in, only in the centuries that would follow this prophecy, which is somewhere around uh, 700 B.C. or even a little before. So he says this about there's hope, there's a promise of a coming Messiah. Here's the profile of him, and he's, they're going to wait 700 years. Aren't you glad there's never been a pastor search that's lasted 700 years? You may have felt like some of them were long enough, but never quite that long, you know? but a plan that's been in motion since ancient times. And the third thing it says about his background, he'll, he'll appear at just the right time. He'll appear at just the right time. Verse 3 says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now this is a real, this is like mysterious sort of language. I mean, this sounds like prophecy, like you would expect it. It almost has a, a riddle tone to it, you know. What does that mean? Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she is in labor has given birth. And you might imagine, especially if you were reading it in Micah's day, that would be uh, even more perplexing. It's, it's still, even as people read it today, a little bit veiled in, uh, in its meaning. You know, some think it's entirely metaphorical, that this idea of a woman giving birth uh, that she who is in labor, you know, giving birth, that it just refers to a long period of hardship for the people of Israel. Travail in that sense, as if being in this long period of labor, and eventually that will come to an end. Um, and some people understand it that way. Uh, it seems to me that the best way of understanding that is it ref- it's refers to the birth of the Messiah. And maybe as some of you just read it, um, and we think of a woman giving birth, immediately Mary comes to mind. Uh, And it would seem that's why even Luke tells the story the way that he does. It's it's not only about uh, the birth being in in Bethlehem, but there's a feature, a a, a spotlight shown on 
the mother of Jesus and her experience of having conceived and then given birth. And one of the reasons, it's not only Luke, one of the reasons it seems to me uh, that that is the best way of, of understanding that, because it, it, it also says um, that uh, God's people will be given into the hands of the enemy in so many words, but when the woman gives birth, the remnant of his people will return. Here's, what it, here, here's the way it reads. Uh, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she was in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So that after the, the woman gives birth to the Messiah, that he will uh, draw the remnant of God's people to himself. We read in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, uh, this statement. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption of sons. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. And so we see Micah having foreshadowed that centuries before, that there's this, there's this judgment coming, but hope long after the judgment uh, manifest in the person of the Messiah, embodied in the person of the Messiah, who will come forth at the appointed time. This is why I said no need to have a, a really an executive search process in place because there will be an appointed time and it would be about 700 years later that it'll come forth born from a woman and then he will redeem those who are his people. So that's his background uh, and really maybe some of the most notable details in uh Micah chapter 5, Micah's not the only one, as we know, who's prophesied about the Messiah. In fact, Monica mentioned one of the references uh, in Isaiah, and there are others in the scripture as well. But these details are the ones particularly notable. He's from Bethlehem. Uh, he's from of old, from ancient days, and he's going to appear at just the right time when the woman who is in labor gives birth. The third thing it tells us about here uh, in terms of the profile of the Messiah is a little bit about his contribution. And I'll just touch briefly on these as we move toward the communion table. But it says, number one, that he's going to rule the whole world. He's not just the ruler of Israel. He will be that. It says that in verse 2. But he'll rule the whole world. Uh, it says there in verse 4, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. In fact, what we know, uh, his rulership will not uh, just be even over the whole world. It'll be over the entire cosmos. All things visible and invisible. In heaven and on the earth and under the earth, he is ruler over all of it. He has been given all authority under heaven and earth, the scripture says. It is more vast than even they could imagine. It's not only to the ends of the earth, but even the invisible realm that governs over the earth. He's ruler of all of it. And so it says, 
Uh, also that uh, about his contribution that the people of God because of him will dwell secure. And uh, you know there are obvious ways in which insecurity will befall them soon and in a way that's worse than they could imagine. Part of the part of the um, you know, the, the, the problem and sort of the sad irony when you read some of these prophetic warnings is that they are, they are usually delivered to people who are living high on the hog. Things are good enough that they just can't hear any bad news. You remember when we were talking about the book of Jeremiah? It says their prophets would say, oh, don't listen to him. Not Jeremiah, he's a Debbie Downer. Yeah, he's like Eeyore. That harm's not going to befall you. He said, peace, peace. But there is no peace, really. And, and when people are just living in good times, they have a hard time hearing, really, anything that uh, God would say to them by way of correction or redirection or warning. And that was the case for his people. There would be insecurity coming their way, but in the Messiah, the people of God will dwell secure. And then finally it says, uh, he will be their peace in verse 5. That phrase alone is just a treasure. He will be their peace. It's not simply that he will give them peace. It's not simply that he will be the source of peace. But that he himself will be their peace. So that even in the midst of circumstances that are unpeaceful, even in the presence of people who are unpeaceable, he will be their peace. The scripture says that about him specifically in um, Ephesians. He himself is their peace, I believe in Ephesians chapter 2. And the word here, uh, in Hebrew for peace is shalom. That's a familiar word to many who have studied the scripture for any period of time. But it, it is really much more full-orbed than our word peace uh, connotes in, 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 uh, in most of our minds. I mean, what we associate with peace and, and the way we think about the word peace, it is a little bit narrower in the way we use the word. It's not just the absence of conflict, although it includes that. It's not just the absence of conflict interpersonally or even, you know, on a political or military level where you think about we're living in peacetime instead of wartime. Again, it is that, but it's not limited to that. It's used uh, to apply to a variety of things including harmonious relationships, but it also expresses wholeness and well-being, including prosperity and health. It's our, our physical, uh, mental, emotional well-being, shalom. It's the removal of disharmony, and the things that cause it. Boy, that sounds 
desirable, does it? If you were going to put one thing on your Christmas list, that would be a good one to receive. Shalom. That rest, that harmony, that removal of the discord and sources of strife and all of that. And there's nobody here this morning who doesn't need more of it. There is nobody here that doesn't need more peace. Especially in the day that we're living in. And especially in light of the last year and a half or so. Where there has been such discord and such strife and such fear and insecurity and unrest and on and on. Well, other words that I, uh, that I could think of and maybe that you could think of. Words that would mean the opposite of peace. Last, the last year and a half has, has been full of them. And even, if you, even beyond that, if you think about our prayer lists and the prayer requests that we make. 90% of it are better. We are f- f- most basically asking God for peace, shalom. Because we're praying for harmony in relationships. We're praying for health and wholeness. Think about the prayer list and how much of it has to do with physical health. Some of it, again, mental and emotional. It may be mental health. It may be uh, the, the emotional um, heaviness and burdens that arise out of some of those physical problems. But a lot of what we pray about pray for and ask for prayer for falls under that category. And, and then we think about our financial well-being or just needs being met. We don't have, we don't have to think about uh, you know, prayers for, for prosperity in the sense of being lavished with riches, but what everybody wants is for their needs to be met so that... Um, those needs don't become a source of worry and striving, right? Like that's, that's pretty common to humanity. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants that. And we pray for it. And when we feel it threatened, we feel in, un, insecure. We feel uh, we lose a measure of peace and we ask God for it. So much of what it is we pray for and so much of what we ask prayer for is for shalom. And what What Micah says about the coming Messiah is that he shall be our peace. And what the New Testament tells us is that Jesus himself is our peace. And so when we pray, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. When we pray, um, that the, the peace of God would guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as I prayed earlier. Our assurance of that is not in the circumstances being changed either immediately or even ever. It is in the fact that the God of peace will be with you. And that's and That's enough. The one who can calm the storms or carry us through them. He is sufficient. 
And we know the assurance we have because of his resurrection that the day will come when, when all things in the new heaven and new earth we talked about last week will be brought to a place of total peace, total shalom at every level. Because Jesus fit that profile of the Messiah to the T. Uh, demonstrated that in the way that he came, in what he did after he came, and what he did, does even now as he reigns and as he offers himself to you and me to be our peace. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is a, uh, just a precious promise and a precious reminder that Jesus is our peace. And God, we, uh, we acknowledge how, how much we need more of it, pray for it and long for it. And we acknowledge also uh, that we often have enough of it, feel secure enough, cared for well enough that we don't always hear your words of correction and redirection and even warning in our lives. And so, Lord, would you align us more wholly, more perfectly with your word and your will? Would you bring us more intimately into communion with Jesus himself that we might experience in personal ways that he is our peace and that that is sufficient. Lord, I pray for people sitting here this morning who really in very specific ways need for you to prove that to be true to, hint to them. And Lord, the burdens are heavy on their hearts, even right now as I pray. So Lord, would you prove how real and how personal and how timely your word is that they might walk in peace and dwell secure because they walk close to the Savior who died for them. And we pray in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen.